Good evening. This is Rob McClure along with Vicki Iden bringing you your local news. Coming to you live from our homes this evening via the WORT studio on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The newest incoming class at UW-Madison is setting a record. The university reports that it has a record number of freshman students, enrolling nearly 8,500 students this fall term. That's nearly 1,000 more students than fall of 2019, which previously set a record for the largest freshman class, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The UW says about 46% of the freshman class are Wisconsin residents, the most in 20 years. And the number of undergraduate students receiving free tuition stands at 3,448 students, also an all-time high. Wisconsin is upgrading its antiquated system for paying unemployment claims. You might remember the state had has signed a $17 million, the state has signed a $17 million contract with the Madison-based software development company Flexicon to overhaul the system. That comes after the state's unemployment system was overwhelmed by claims last year and throughout the pandemic. The Associated Press is reporting that in mid-September, the average appeal took 55 days to get a hearing. Earlier this week, Madison police detained Doyle Refert on a tentative charge of first-degree intentional homicide, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. That's after an individual suffered gunshot wounds and later died from a shooting on Madison's southwest side. Now, the Dane County District Attorney's Office is asking the Sheriff's Office to release Rayford from custody without filing charges, citing Wisconsin's self-defense statute, also known as the Castle Doctrine. In a release sent to reporters today, D.A. Ozan wrote that he is asking the Sheriff's Office to do so because he was required to presume that Rayford used necessary force and does not want to pursue charges unless he can prove guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. The DA took care to emphasize that this is not the final decision on whether Reifert will face charges. The DA also cautioned Dane County residents from interpreting his decision as a license to use force intended to cause death or harm against others. Monday evening's homicide marks the 10th homicide in the city this year. What primary mode of transportation do you use when accessing John Nolan Drive? How safe do you feel when traveling on John Nolan Drive? Those are some of the questions in a City of Madison survey that's asking for your input on the future of John Nolan Drive. It's all part of a planning of planning a reconstruction of the major thoroughfare and planning options to change that southwest isthmus choke points, roads, paths, and the shoreline. To give your input, head to thecityofmadison.com. The rolling seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases stands at an average of 2,532 cases per day. And 21 counties across the state are now considered at a critically high activity level, which means they're seeing rates higher than 1,000 cases per 100,000 residents. Last week, just eight counties were at a critically high activity level. Locally, the Madison Metro School District is reporting it's had 81 new positive COVID-19 cases in the past week, bringing the cumulative total of cases this school year to 243 total cases since mid-August. It's also reporting 474 new quarantines in the past seven days, bringing the cumulative total of quarantines this school year to 1,219 quarantines. On Monday, the Madison School Board passed a plan to vaccinate all Madison Metropolitan School District staff by November. And that's it for the headlines this evening. We'll be on to the rest of the local news in a moment. But we have Jade and Katya still in the studio, and uh, I'm guessing they're going to ask you to help pay for this local news. We have so many things that we have to pay for, Rob. You wouldn't even believe. We've got like licensing for Adobe Edition. That's really, that's the big bucks. And that's how we sound so good also. Yes. It's, it's kind of expensive. But if you can call and help us, that would be huge. 
So it's 608-256-2001. It makes the news happen. Honestly, we, we run on OB, uh, Adobe Edition. Uh, we also run on uh, recorders. That's really wonderful. Headphones, chairs. We could, we could use some new chairs downstairs. I'm just saying. Definitely. The newsroom, yes, could use some new chairs. And uh, did we paint? We painted already. Oh, yeah, we there. painted. Yeah. So we yeah. bought paint. The paint is paid for. Yes. Uh, so you can call right now, 608-256-2001. Go to wortfm.org. You make the local news happen. I make the local news happen. You're going to hear my voice in a little bit about uh, less than exciting news. On Monday, Fitchburg's Police and Fire Commission selected Alfonso Morales as the city's next top cop. Morales previously served as Milwaukee's chief of police, where he drew criticism for his handling of last summer's protests and his collaboration with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE. One quick note, this story contains audio of a police raid. Our producer Jonah Tester takes it from there. Two months ago, Alfonso Morales reached a legal settlement with the city of Milwaukee to the tune of $627,000. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, Milwaukee's Common Council unanimously approved the settlement after nearly a year of legal back and forth with Morales. It began last July when Milwaukee's Police and Fire Commission issued Morales several directives requiring him to, among other things, conduct thorough investigations of several police-involved incidents, draft a community-oriented policing strategy, and implement a mask mandate for officers. Morales rejected those directives, arguing they were unclear and potentially illegal, and was subsequently demoted. He then retired and filed a lawsuit against the city for wrongful demotion. That's the case that eventually led to that six-figure settlement. Now, Morales has been appointed as the chief of police for the city of Fitchburg. In a 3-2 decision on Monday, which was made in closed session, Fitchburg's police and fire commission selected Morales as the city's new top cop. Morales will make between $135,000 and $145,000 per year. That's about on par with what he was making in Milwaukee, a city with almost 20 times more people than Fitchburg. Speaking at Monday's meeting, PFC President Jeff Standiford outlined Morales' hiring process. The process included a community panel presentation, interviews with, community, with the community and other law enforcement leaders, a, uh, a meeting with police officers in Fitchburg, city tour, uh, the uh, the panel presentations uh, with the community and two interviews with the Police and Fire Commission, as well as a detailed background check. So we outlined that just because we wanted everybody to know that um, it was a thorough process. The BFC also solicited public feedback via a community survey, which more than 300 people filled out. But some have expressed concerns about Morales' approach to policing and his willingness to cooperate with the U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency, or ICE. ICE has been scrutinized and condemned by immigrant rights activists for deporting undocumented migrants. The Madison Police Department has mostly cut its ties with the federal agency over the issue. Voces de la Frontera is a Milwaukee-based social justice organization that focuses on issues facing Wisconsin's immigrant communities. Tommy Molina was the organizer behind Voces' ICE Out of Milwaukee campaign. Molina says that in 2019, the organization spent months going back and forth with Morales on ousting ICE from Milwaukee. It took interference from the Milwaukee Police and Fire Commission to sever the police department's ties with the federal agency. So um, our, our first engagement with Morales actually dealt with um, he, when he was authorizing the Milwaukee police to collaborate with ICE. And so uh, we went back and forth for about six months fighting him to change the policy to prevent um, the local police department from collaborating with ICE. He was in support of uh, continuing the collaboration, but he was forced to change the policy because of the Fire and Police Commission in Milwaukee. And so we began discussions with Morales um, to try to bring forth this community engagement, but he did not want to engage with us. Speaking with WORT contributor Greg Jaboski last month, Morales defended his past efforts to cooperate with ICE. When a law enforcement agency calls for assistance to another law enforcement agency, 
it's the law enforcement agency at the street level is going to respond to assist another law enforcement agency. During his work with VOSIS, Molina witnessed a raid that the Milwaukee Police Department, then under Morales' command, conducted while aiding the federal immigration agency. In the video, the Milwaukee PD can be seen collaborating with ICE to arrest Jose de la Cruz, an undocumented immigrant who was planning to apply for permanent resident status. De La Cruz had been living in the U.S. for 20 years at the time of his arrest, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. De La Cruz's arrest was in September 2019, just a few months before the Milwaukee PFC ordered the city's police department to sever its ties with ICE. Molina captured the raid on his phone. I think that this is a huge loss for uh, the community of Pittsburgh. Um, Pittsburgh, as we know, is increasingly diverse. Latino population actually mirrors that of Milwaukee. And so given that uh, Chief Morales has a poor track record of engaging with the community, of um, trying to mobilize the police department to collaborate with ICE, and has engaged in attacks on peaceful protesters, I think that this brings up huge concerns for, for the people of Fitchburg. The Fitchburg PFC didn't return WORT's request for additional comment today. In an online statement announcing the hire, members wrote that, quote, The commission is looking forward to the future, working with Chief Morales to continue to provide community-involved policing and law enforcement that respects the value of all individuals in our community, unquote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester. Chief Morales is going to love to see police collaborating with ICE. Thank you for your badge numbers. Terrorists! Yesterday, Wisconsin's Republican-held Senate passed a bill that could result in steep punishments for abortion providers. Under the legislation, in the rare case that a baby is born as a result of a failed abortion, the medical team must provide life-saving care. Democrats say that's already required by law. For more, we turn to WORT reporter Jade Isiri Ramos. Wisconsin's Republicans are once again championing a so-called born-alive bill. Such a bill would require a health care provider to give a baby life-saving care if that baby is born as a result of a failed abortion. And if doctors don't, they can be prosecuted for the death, fined up to $10,000, or spend six years in prison. A, quote, intentional death could result in a life sentence. That's the same sentencing as first-degree intentional homicide. Under the bill, the abortion patient can't be charged, but she can press charges against her doctor. During the last legislative session, the bill passed in both the Senate and Assembly, but Governor Tony Evers vetoed it along with three other anti-abortion laws. Roger Roth, a Republican from Appleton and the bill's author, says the legislation is an anti-murder bill. I can say with confidence... No matter where you fall in the spectrum of pro-life to support abortion, all of us should want a newborn to receive immediate, life-saving medical care. Who could oppose that? According to the CDC, over the last decade, there were upwards of 588 infant deaths that occurred after a child was born alive. To say this does not happen is just plain false. Roth is pointing to data from the U.S. Centers of Disease Control and Prevention that investigates infant death cases where the death certificate mentions termination of pregnancy. Because that can include both spontaneous or natural loss of pregnancy and medical abortions, the CDC data notes that only about a quarter of those 588 deaths can definitely be classified as involving an abortion. Nationally, more than 6,000 abortions were provided in 2014, the last year covered in the data Roth referenced. Senator Kelderroys, a Democrat from Madison, says a bill is built on lies. Doctors already have an obligation, legal and ethical, to provide appropriate medical care, and to suggest otherwise is offensive. Royce points to other ways that the legislature can help mothers and children, including investing in family leave, expanding badger care, addressing racial disparities, and wearing a mask. On a personal note, I came to this body day after day, month after month, while I was pregnant, and you all knew that. And yet many of the people in this room supporting this bill refused to so much as wear a mask. Even though as a pregnant person, I was 15 times more likely to die of COVID. And yet so many of my colleagues across the aisle wouldn't even do the simple courtesy of wearing a mask. 
That is why it's really hard to take seriously the stated purpose of this bill. Royce calls the bill a coordinated effort to undermine reproductive rights. She points to Rebecca Clayfish, a GOP candidate running for governor in 2022. Clayfish, a former lieutenant governor in Scott Walker's administration, told a conservative talk radio host earlier this month that if elected, she would sign a so-called heartbeat bill, similar to Texas's new law banning abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. That's before most people know that they are pregnant. Wisconsin's bill passed 19 to 12 along party lines yesterday. It now heads to the state assembly, where it already has 28 co-sponsors, all of who are Republicans. It faces a likely veto from Governor Tony Evers. In Wisconsin, several other restrictions on abortion already exist. Among other things, patients seeking an abortion must receive counseling and undergo an ultrasound, having a provider show and describe the image. Abortions after 20 weeks are only permitted in cases that threaten the mother's life. And this winter, the U.S. Supreme Court will hear a case that has potential to overrule Roe v. Wade, the landmark ruling legalizing abortion. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jade Isiri Ramos. And the time has just gone 6.22 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Before we turn to our next story, we want to check back in with Katya and Jade and see if we've raised any money in the last few minutes. Fortunately, Rob, we have not yet had any pledges. So if you are listening right now and you care about the news that we brought you, I I think uh, Jonah and I both had really heavy stories to start off um, this hour. But, you know, that's what your your pledge dollars brings us. Um, If you want to support us, 608-256-2001. Yes, or if you'd like to go online, wortfm.org, if you don't want to talk to anybody. (laughs) Yeah, maybe those stories, you know, you're like, wow, the world's got a lot going on. I just want to get online and type in an address. Do that. Please help us uh, continue to bring the news to you. You make the news happen as much as, you know, us reporters do. That's 608-256-2001, extension 1. Thank you so much. And I'll hand it back over to Rob and Vicki. A coalition of Democratic lawmakers are floating a legislative package that seeks to divert more funds to Wisconsin's colleges and universities. The package would also increase access to college for the state's low-income students. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Democratic State Representative Katrina Shankland. So these bills cover a wide swath of issues. You introduced them earlier today. Uh, You have several of your Democratic legislative colleagues who are co-sponsoring them. But just broadly, tell me about the need here. Uh, Why do Wisconsin's post-secondary institutions need this aid and this support right now? Absolutely. So the average debt per borrower in Wisconsin is about $30,000. And for many people, not only can they not afford it, but many times they have to defer their dreams. And we should do more to fund our technical colleges and our public universities and make sure they're affordable and accessible to everyone. So in addition to investing in need-based financial aid, which Wisconsin has a great program called Wisconsin Grants, um, we also need and can freeze tuition and fund that freeze, help people graduate on time and lower their student loan debt. And, you know, if you look at what other states have done over the years, We've seen them invest in their public higher education institutions, and Wisconsin um, is really falling behind. We used to be a leader in public higher education, and and we can restore that legacy by investing in our technical colleges and UW system in a way that's more meaningful than the Republican-led legislature has done over the last decade. Now, in particular, tell me about that measure, that tuition freeze at UW system campuses. I understand you're proposing to offset that with some additional funds from the state. Absolutely. So um, our Budget Bureau estimates that it costs about $50 million to actually fund that tuition freeze. I don't believe that people should have to afford the cost of increased tuition over time. And I'm, I'm grateful that the cost of tuition did not go up this year. The Board of Regents decided not to raise it. But I think instead what we need to do in order to keep higher education within reach for people is freeze that tuition so that they're guaranteed the same price throughout their time in college. And, you know, we can fund that freeze using our state's general purpose revenue to not only ensure that they can get the classes they need, but that our educators 
educators have the resources they need in the classrooms to support them. Um, the tuition freeze occurred in Wisconsin from 2013 to 2020. And throughout that time, it was never funded. So every two years, every budget cycle, um, our University of Wisconsin system lost out on about $50 million. How that actually translated, I would travel around the state and talk to students at different campuses, and I'd say, raise your hand if you've had to wait at least one semester for a course you needed to graduate. Most people would raise their hands. And I'd say, well, keep your hand raised if you've had to wait two semesters. And sometimes it would be half the room of students. So you can understand, you know, by having to wait an extra semester or even two semesters to get that one course you need to graduate, limiting those resources in the classroom can actually inhibit not only your ability to graduate on time, but it can add to your student loan debt. So I think by funding the freeze, you're not only ensuring those resources continue to go in the classroom, that you have enough faculty and staff uh, to provide those courses, but also that then, you know, you're, you're keeping tuition flat over time so that you can budget for it. And, and I think in addition to that, investing in need-based financial aid, there's so many students that are technical colleges and universities who qualify for these dollars, um, that helps offset the cost of tuition for them. So this bill would also increase the need-based financial aid and ensure that more people would have access to those grants. Now, as I mentioned, you introduced this earlier alongside a number of your Democratic colleagues in the legislature, but what's been the response from your Republican colleagues? Did you seek their input on these bills? Have you heard any feedback from them yet? Yeah, so I actually reached out to some of my Republican colleagues, um, one of whom specifically co-sponsored all of these bills except for the the brand new one, the, the tuition promise, um, last session. And unfortunately, he declined to participate this session but did not provide any feedback as to why. I think it's important to recognize that Tommy Thompson, a prominent Republican, former governor of Wisconsin, current president of UW System, is a champion of expanding the tuition pr- promise program. So as president of UW system, he actually advocated for this program. Uh, and this is one of the bills in the package. It would allow incoming new students at any UW system institution other than UW Madison, which already has Bucky's tuition promise to be eligible for a tuition free grant program. Um, as long as they or their family make less than $60,000 a year and are enrolled in an on-campus program at UW System Institution other than UW-Madison. So if Tommy Thompson can champion this and the governor can include it in his budget proposal, so Governor Evers put it in his proposed budget and Republicans took it out, I think that shows bipartisanship, you know, and while some of my Republican colleagues in the legislature might not agree with it, um, I think at the end of the day, we need to be doing everything we can to get more students into the education institutions in Wisconsin. Um, There are, you know, I I mentioned earlier that the average amount of um, per student borrowing borrowing is about $30,000 in Wisconsin. That doesn't even account for the people who can't afford to go to any higher education institution altogether. And we're, we're not looking right now in Wisconsin at the people who would be students if they could afford it. And I think that's what this tuition promise program would do. It would bring new people into um, our four-year and two-year institutions and support them in attaining that credential, that college degree, and helping them not only with earnings, but critical thinking skills and, and workforce skills as well. Representative Shanklin, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to join me. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Katrina Shankland is a Democratic state representative from Stevens Point. And you're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us for the second half. We've got a lot more coming at you. We'll get the week in local government on Downtown Abbey. Madison in the 60s will give us the headlines from September of 1968. We've got a couple more beautiful days coming up before we well get wet for the weekend. I'll give you all the details in a few minutes. I'm Ollie, and she first will hear some news from around the world. Back in a flash. The 
time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, along with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us for the second half. Do you know what the city council is up to this week? How about the Dane County Board? Each week, we turn to the Cap Times' Abigail Becker for what you need to know about what your local government is up to. This week, it's a budget season special. Both the county and city are gearing up to hash out their 2022 spending plans. Here's the latest from Becker on this episode of Downtown Abbey. All right, it is Wednesday, which means I'm joined on the other end of the line by our local government wizard, Abigail Becker, local government reporter at the Cap Times. Abigail, welcome back to the airwaves. It has been a two-week hiatus for you. You just got married, and let me just, uh, I said this before we jumped on the recording, but let me just extend uh, my sincerest congrats from both me and us here at the WORT team. Well, thank you. That is so kind, and it is definitely good to be back on the airwaves. It is good to have you back, because boy, oh boy, a lot has been happening in local government while you've been gone. Most notably, we are in the thick of it. We're jumping into budget season, both at the city and the county. Let's start out here. We're going to take a look at the top level. That would be the Dane County budget. This week, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi announced several 2022 budget initiatives this week ahead of Friday, when the budget in its entirety will be introduced much like a musical artist introduces singles ahead of a full album drop. Now, the first item that he announced this week was a $10 million crisis triage center. Tell us more about that. Yeah, so this project is the largest item included in Executive Joe Parisi's proposed spending plan for next year, or the largest single item, I should say. Um, And the goal of the 24-hour crisis triage center is to divert people with behavioral health challenges from the criminal justice system and to extend the available network recovery services in the community. Residents could stay for up to 23 hours before being directed to other programs. They can access services by walking into the center with the referral from a community partner or be brought in by law enforcement. Uh, Parisi said that creating a triage center is the next logical step in the county's investments in mental health, um, and it's a response to community needs and addressing the root causes of behavioral health crises. Um, I do just want to note um, on budget season as a whole here, after the executive's budget proposal is announced, it's going to move through county committees until it arrives in front of the full board of supervisors in November. Um, So at the press conference announcing this triage center, Dane County Board Chair Annalise Eicher said that it's, quote, absolutely incredible that the county came together so quickly last year to be at the point now of, you know, potentially funding this crisis triage center. And she said it will be an integral part of our community's health moving forward. This triage center would build on major investments like the Behavioral Health Resource Center, which the county opened last November. Parisi announced he will include an additional $440,000 for that center, bringing the total funding to over $1.2 million annually. This resource center, which has served over 1,000 people since opening, serves as a connection point between residents and public and private providers of mental and behavioral health care. Health care systems as a whole are confusing to navigate, and so the center helps to break things down for people trying to figure it out. Also, Parisi announced he's including $500,000 in his budget proposal to create a new division of mental health within the Department of Human Services. So this division, which would include a new director and staff, would oversee all of Dane County's mental health initiatives across all departments. So this would include uh, things like the Building Bridges program in schools and a potential new initiative in the sheriff's office that would expedite connecting people in crisis to mental health providers virtually. And we can talk more about that later, later on here. And this new division would also work with that Behavioral Health Resource Center and oversee this coming triage center. This is new division really is sort of a reflection of, you know, the need for a place to bring together all these mental health programs that the county is creating. Um, so it's sort of a, an interesting problem to have, to have many resources and needing a division to sort of manage um, and organize all of those. So additionally, Parisi announced um, $500,000 per year for that Building Bridges program for a total of $1.5 million, uh, per year. So this investment, which Parisi said will be available to school districts interested in expanding the program, is funded through American Rescue Plan Act funds that the county received 
received from the federal government to recover from the pandemic. Um, and two more items here that Parisi announced ahead of his full you know, budget announcement coming up here on Friday. Um, he's including $100,000 to study the feasibility of launching a youth crisis stabilization center. Um, and it would be for youth who may need more intense services. The facility would be, you know, for young people who need access to clinical mental health services in a residential setting. Um, and lastly, the county exec announced that funding for mental health programs for seniors will increase by $58,000 to total over $250,000 in his 2022 budget proposal. And meanwhile, Madison's budget is also moving forward. So where in the process is the city on adopting the 2022 spending plans? Yeah, so uh, just recently, Madison's Finance Committee refined the city's 2022 capital budget. Um, This happened on Monday, and the committee recommended all but one change to Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway's proposed spending plan. Um, So I'll walk through some of the changes that uh, that they recommended so one of those is budgeting for a new restroom facility at Country Grove Park, which is on the west side, um, and also adding a condition to the city spending funds on this new Rindall Imagination Center. And those are all among the recommended changes to the mayor's proposed $355.3 million executive capital budget. So in the process here, the mayor introduces her budget, and then uh, first up, the finance committee has opportunities to make changes to that budget. So that's all what happened uh, this week at finance committee. So on Country Grove Park, Alder Mahalia, who represents District 7, sponsored this amendment to spend $100,000 next year and $1.55 million in 2023 for the design and construction of a new bathroom facility at the park. She said that the park sees the third largest number of soccer field reservations in the city's park system as a whole, and that the lack of restrooms is definitely a problem. Uh, Though construction funds would be budgeted in 2023, Mahalia said the intent would be for construction to be complete by 2024, uh, which is a good thing because Park Superintendent Eric Nett said that the division's work plan for next year is quite heavy and construction in 2023 likely wouldn't happen. On this Rindall Imagination Center project, Uh, This has been talked about for a few years now here in the city, and the center aims to fill a gap in civic resources on the east side and would provide um, a library, community space, and, you know, house other community services. Uh, So the committee ultimately recommended an amendment calling for the city council to approve an operating cost plan for the center before spending $1.1 million on design work and construction in 2023. Another alder, Alder Sherry Carter, who represents District 14, unsuccessfully proposed changing the amendment to require only the library director to issue that um, that cost report to the finance director, which would have removed that extra city council approval step. Um, and her point with that was to really say that the city, you know, supports the program and um, to take away that option for the city council to potentially, um, you know, not approve uh, that project. So um, this is, like I said, has been going on for quite some time and is another project I'm personally interested to see how it ends up. So uh, a couple other items here on a four to two vote, the committee rejected an amendment that would have added a new $21.4 million Madison Police Department property and evidence facility into the five-year capital improvement plan, which oversees projects over the next five years. So there were several other changes that the committee recommended. And, you know, some of these were changes just to language in the budget. um, And some were adding projects to something called the horizon list, which sort of a a, a guidepost list for for future projects. So with all that in mind, what's up next? What, uh, What can residents look out for next with the city's budget process? Yeah, well, next up for the 2022 capital budget, um, as amended, includes a public hearing at the city council's meeting um, on October 5th, which is next week. Then the capital budget and operating budget are open during the first week in November for the city council to make amendments. Now, the operating budget uh, from the mayor hasn't yet been introduced, but I know we'll be talking about that uh, when it is. All the amendments will be considered during budget deliberations, which begin November 9th. All right, and we will keep our eyes peeled for those. Uh, But for now, I've been joined on the other end of the line for a special budget-themed episode uh, by local government reporter for the Cap Times, Abigail Becker. Abigail, as always, thanks so much for joining me. Always great to be here. Thanks so much, Jonah. 
It's now 6.42 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. Before we turn to our next story, we want to check back in with Jade and Katya, who want to tell you a little something about WORT's Fall Pledge Drive. We have great news here. We certainly do. We have gotten two pledges. Yeah, tell us about the first one. Let me just catch my breath right quickly. <laughs> we got pledges, too excited, yeah. Two pledges came in simultaneously. It's a lot to handle. Aaron, thank you so much for your generous pledge. You are going to be getting a new long sleeve wart t-shirt. Ooh, Aaron's going to look so good. I'm coveting that t-shirt myself. Yeah, right? So um, Aaron encourages anyone who loves Rob's weather report to please donate yes oh we're going into the weather report soon and i think there's bad news for your, your weekend. <laughs> i know katya's got big plans this weekend i hope not i think i think rob can change that i yeah, just I think want so him to too. say the weekend's gonna be great and um yeah we'll we'll go there take it away <laughs> great and it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, thanks to Aaron and all the subscribers to this station. We've had a beautiful few days this work week so far with absolutely cloudless skies, little in the way of wind and high temperatures, generally 10 to 15 degrees above where they should be this time of year, which is to say in the upper 60s. We finally began to see just a few strands of cirrus wafting above us in the sky today, but so far it's looking like thin ice crystal clouds is all we're likely to see as we go forward through the next well, 24 hours anyway, possibly a bit longer than that, uh, which is not what you'd be expecting if you had listened to my Monday morning forecast this week in which I predicted that we would begin to cloud over substantially tomorrow and then wet up with passing showers Friday. But the good news is the overall pattern has slowed down for reasons I'll go into momentarily. So the next two days should be dry. The bad news, obviously, is that the rains have therefore got pushed onto the weekend instead, though there's a prospect that Sunday may dry out later on. And in any case, the precipitation is still looking to be fairly scattered and intermittent and light. You can get a sense of what's behind that forecast transition by looking at the water vapor image of North America that's linked on the WORT weather webpage, which this evening shows a very amplified upper air pattern coming together across the continent with a deep upper trough over the front range of the Rockies, a narrow ridge eastward from there into the western Great Lakes, and then another deep trough from about Indiana eastward to the east coast. Not only does that degree of amplification tend to slow down the eastward progress of the larger features in it, but the trough to our east is doing a little better job than anticipated holding the surface high pressure cell that's been keeping us so clear in place here. So it's downward compressive drying action is going to be continuing to evaporate a lot of the moisture that's going to be thrown our way the next couple of days by the approaching upper trough and surface low pressure to our west. By Saturday, though, that trough will have spent a lot of its energy sending showers up the plains to our west before its rather disorganized remainder lifts then to our northwest. So I don't think we'll see excessive rains when we get on into the weekend. Incidentally, if you do have that water vapor image up, you might note Hurricane Sam swirling westward out across the western Atlantic, very impressively organized currently with a visible eye. But that storm's about to recur north and northeastward, hopefully missing Bermuda in the process. Closer to hand, though, we have a fairly straightforward forecast coming up, but one in which the timing of the showers and thunderstorms as they do finally approach will be a little bit tricky because of the somewhat disorganized nature of this overall system. But tonight, skies will continue to see passing skeins of cirrus, but otherwise remain clear with temperatures dropping to the low to mid 50s on light southeasterly winds generally below 5 miles per hour. Tomorrow, passing cirrus along with occasional mid-level clouds will thicken and thin uh, at turns, I think allowing some unfiltered sunshine through uh, off and on as well. Temperatures will be a little bit cloud dependent, but may make 80 degrees again like today with um, upper 70s otherwise in spots that stay a little cloudier. Winds will be southeast at 4 to 8 miles per hour. Passing clouds will continue overnight with a low temperature in the mid 50s. Friday, the short-range modeling is currently holding the showers west of us in Iowa and Minnesota as a preliminary wave lifts northward in the morning hours. So I'm expecting 
only an increase in cloud cover at that time, uh, but that'll likely keep temperatures more subdued, though if we should get some clearing behind that first wave, we may hit 80 again on veering southerly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Lighter southerly winds will hold us in the upper 50s overnight, and I'm expecting showers, possibly a thunderstorm, to begin approaching at least the western areas by the later part of that night, possibly earlier. And Saturday, the showers are likely to pass in scattered fashion, southwest and northeast, but with a fair number of dry hours mixed in as well. Temperatures will be held in the low 70s by rain and cloud cover. Showery, showery rains may continue through the overnight as the winds veer west and northwest with the passage of the cold front later Saturday. And Sunday, I'm expecting to be mostly cloudy with rains ending finally and a high temperature in the mid-60s on northerly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Uh, just now, it's 78 degrees at the airport in Madison. The dew point temperature is 55. Uh, there's some just a few passing cirrus up at about 30,000 feet. Winds are out of the east at 7 miles per hour. Barometer is uh, fairly steady the past few hours at 30.04 inches of mercury. We go now to September 1968, when the war in Vietnam dominated life and death on the UW campus. Stu Levitan has the details on this week's Madison in the 60s. Madison in the 60s, Life on Campus, September 1968. The University of Wisconsin opens a new academic year with its third chancellor in four years. H. Edwin Young, recommended by President Fred Harvey Harrington and unanimously confirmed by the regents to succeed William Sewell. Sewell had quit over the summer before he was fired after just one troubled year. I was the wrong man for the times and the situation, Sewell later writes a friend, but Young's appointment, which Sewell predicted months earlier, almost doesn't happen. Harrington's hand-picked search and selection committee inexplicably does not include Young among its list of candidates. Harrington has to call the members in and direct them to do so, which they do. Harrington believes Young to be more aggressive in cracking down on students, including using undercover agents among them. Young's first press conference proves him right. Demonstrations are appropriate behavior for students, he says, but we won't tolerate disruption of this university. There are always people who would like to destroy the system, he adds, but I don't regard closing down the university as a legitimate demand. The 1968-69 protest season starts on Saturday, September 14th, with the return of an issue from years ago, Reserve Officer Training Corps, the ROTC. About 250 students meet on Library Mall and proclaim themselves the Freshman ROTC Resistance. They vote to boycott the mandatory ROTC orientation classes, which are still required of freshman males even after ROTC itself was made voluntary in 1960, back when the new chancellor chaired the powerful university committee. At just about the same time the students meet on the mall, a decorated 1967 UW graduate of the ROTC program, Army Lieutenant Harry B. Hamilton III, 24, dies aboard the hospital ship Repose in the South China Sea. A 1963 graduate of West High School, Hamilton had been injured during a firefight seven days prior. In his nine months in Vietnam, Hamilton had been awarded three Purple Hearts, a presidential citation, the Army Commendation Medal for Heroism, and numerous other commendations. Back on campus Monday morning, about 30 of the 300 students walk out of the first ROTC orientation. Another 16 do likewise at the noon session. That night, about 200 students meet and agree to engage in prolonged disruptive discussions during the class sessions, which continue through the week. Two important developments on Wednesday, History professor Harvey Goldberg, the hero of radical and revolutionary students, 
becomes the first professor to have a class disrupted by the Radical History Students Association. Interrupting Goldberg's European Social History Lecture to a capacity crowd in the Ag Hall Auditorium, the day's topic is 17th century market capitalism, the HSA's Michael David Rosen successfully diverts the class into a critique of the course itself. That night, about 700 activists meet in 6210 Social Sciences for the merger meeting of the Madison Students for Democratic Society and the Wisconsin Draft Resistance Union. The WDRU's John First, who had been the founding chairman of the SDS chapter at Columbia University, says the unified group will focus on organizational activity rather than the previous strategy of confrontation. In an unrelated development, UW Director of Protection and Security, Ralph Hansen, announces the department will establish nightly foot patrols, install call boxes around campus, and take other measures in response to the sharp increase in muggings and sexual assault. Thursday, the Student Senate endorses making the ROTC orientation voluntary and schedules a referendum for October. The voluntary ROTC program itself, in place since 1960, is already hurting. Combined enrollment for the Madison and Milwaukee campuses last fall fell to 1,257, its lowest level since 1962. Thursday night, many of the protesters packed the Union Theater as the Folk Arts Society presents the great blues guitarist B.B. King and his Blues Review. Basically, he educated a lot of honkies, Daily Cardinal reviewer Burry St. Edmund enthuses. But Eighth War Alder Paul Soglin and the WDRU's first have to miss the show. They're live on WIBA radio discussing politics and the university student with Papa Hambone, the radio identity for writer George Vukalik. Saturday morning, the 21st, brings the first woman-directed anti-war action as about 60 women and a handful of men rally at Lincoln Terrace, where Naomi Poro urges a start of what she calls a women's liberation movement on campus, focusing on issues beyond ROTC, including abortion, birth control, and discrimination in employment. Then they march on Ag Hall to invade a naval ROTC class. Using the microphone provided by Captain C.E. Olson, first-year student Lori Rosen, Michael's younger sister, reads a statement denouncing the military presence on campus and the war. Then the program resumes. That's when the hissing, hollering, foot-stomping, and clapping begin. Olson twice warns that further disruptions will not be tolerated, but takes no action to expel the protesters. While the ROTC action is underway, other students are heckling U.S. Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall because he refuses to denounce or even discuss the war during a well-attended Union Theater appearance. The first African-American on the high court, Marshall is able to finish his talk, part of the law school's commemoration of the 100th anniversary of the 14th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution. And in an entirely separate campus world, the 17 sororities hold informal parties and formal dinners for the 750 first-year co-eds going through sorority rush. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, vaccine-taking, mask-wearing, listener-supported WRT News Team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6. And just before we go, one correction to a story we reported earlier. You may have heard in Jade Isiri Ramos's story on the abortion legislation before the legislature. She said that there were 6,000 national ab abortions nationally in 2014. That should, of course, been 600,000 abortions nationally in 2014. She has thankfully uh, uh, corrected that error. And thanks to Jade for being our sole reporter this evening. Special thanks also to feature contributors Abby Becker and Stu Levitan. Jonah Chester produced the newscast this evening. Ken Brady is our on-air engineer, and Shelly Pittman is the news director at this listener-sponsored community radio station. I'm your host, Robert McClure. 
And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Thank you to all of you who are supporting WORT these last few weeks. Um, you can also stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. If you don't get enough of us Mondays through Thursdays, subscribe. Uh, you, can, you can listen online. Subscribe on iTunes podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query Followed by This Way Out. And we're going to check in one more time with Jade and Katya before we head out for the evening. Uh, Good night, everybody, and keep those pledges coming, please. (laughs) Um, I got to thank Sarah, who donated during the hour. So both Aaron and Sarah, you are our heroes. Yes. Um, (laughs) We... Sarah's getting that cool mask I was telling you about. The one that's black so you can't see your like face grease on your mask. It's really important. <laughs> Thank you so much, Sarah. It is not too late to, no. to donate and support the 6 o'clock news. It is um, some of the best news on, on the air. It's 608-256-2001. We still have phone answers waiting for you. You can click extension 1 to go right to them. Um, but Sarah... Obviously loves the news. She says the reporting is so important. Um, loves a, a public affair and letters and politics, blues and jazz, and of course, Mel and Floyd. They save our lives. <laughs> uh, if you want to be like Sarah and Aaron and want to support us in this last... And uh, Noah. And Noah. Yeah, Noah called the hour before. If you want to support local news um, or, you know, democracy now even, uh, call 608-256-2001. This is the last hour, the last minute of pledging for the news this this pledge season. Um, so make sure that you get your voice heard and, and tell them that you love the Wednesday news. In my humble opinion, it is... The best news day of the year of the well of the year, yeah, sure, <laughs> of, of the week. <laughs> so six zero eight two five six two zero zero one. Katya, you want to tell them uh, why you why you support WORT? Sure, I just find that I get to enjoy uh, shows and personalities and a space that I come to that is unlike any other space that we have in our great city. So it, it's truly a gem. Yep, and Wart builds relationships. I know Katya because of Wart, and right. big things are coming out of this relationship, I'll tell you. 608 256 2001 or WORTFM.org. I swear it takes like one minute. WORT 89.9 FM, Madison.